Um, this lecture was originally scheduled for late in the spring, and uh, the wisdom of the director was to maybe move it up and have it today as a warm-up for tomorrow. Um, we compete in our culture for depth. It's rare to find it. It seems as though it's not particularly honored in our culture. There are reasons for that. We are <clears throat> a culture of narcissism. Christopher Lash, in his book by the same title, identified that so much of our culture is uh, centered on ego and ego gratification, and so little of our culture seems to emphasize and provide context and learning for things of depth. Uh, this institute here has been one of those in our culture that's emphasized the opportunity and conversation of things of some depth. I hope you'll find our conversation this afternoon one of those. As the promotion said, the Eskimos have 32 words for snow, and uh, it's said of a culture that you can tell the sophistication of a culture by the number of words it has for a particular concept. Snow, very important to the Eskimos, and so they have 32 variations of the ways they speak about snow hard snow, soft snow, uh, the subtlety of light that plays on snow and makes a different kind of context and concept and experience. Our culture has one word for love, which says something about our sophistication about this concept. Uh, the kind of love that we will be celebrating tomorrow <clears throat> is um, promoted primarily by the greeting card industry. Um, they have been uh, uh, a very exploitive in a way, maybe in a, an important way of, of a kind of understanding of love that is marketable. The kind of love that we find uh, philosophically and theologically is not necessarily marketable because it re requires uh, great depth and great thought and a great sense of commitment. I want to talk about uh, three kinds of love uh, today, uh, taking from the Greeks their words that we have barely in our vocabulary, the three words being eros, philia, and agape. I choose those because those are the kinds of love that uh, most of us experience in a broad range of relationships and a broad range of life experience. They had a fourth word, which is sorge, which is the love of a family. That is an inherited love. I would say that that, that love is in our DNA. The kind of love that a parent has for a child or a sibling for a sibling um, or a child for a parent with all the subtle differences in those kinds of love but that's a category of love that we inherit, we don't generally choose. Uh, families are our fate. And uh, we don't choose to whom we're born or when we're born or where we're born, it's a part of our fate. Family love is um, uh, complicated and perhaps a lecture in itself about the love of family for family or the love of adult for child, we'll imply some of that as we talk about eros, philia, and agape, particularly when we get to the section on agape. 
But once again, our culture has superficialized the idea of family even and, and romanticized it, sentimentalized it, and we have politicians who are exploiting us with their call to get back to family values. Uh, there's an old joke where the people took in a stranger and said, well, we're going to treat you like family. And, <laughs> and he said, oh God, please don't. <laughs> I've said before that, as many of you know, I have a clinical practice and uh, that uh, if a Martian came to this earth and heard on TV all the call for return to family values, that he would see that this is a very high value in our culture and would come to me as an analyst and say, what is a family? And I would say, well, why don't you sit in my office for a week and listen to people talk about their families and you tell me at the end of the week <laughs> what a family is. Um, the, the point of that is to say that that is a, f uh, a love that is a part of our fate, and it has particular dimensions to it, which we can discuss if you want to in our question and answer period. But for the sake of our discussion about the kinds of love that, that we experience that are voluntary or that are part of our choice, and they would be under the category of what I call secondary fate. That is to say, our primary fate is our gender that we're born, where and when, at a particular time, particular place, and particular set of parents to whom we're born is our fate. We have a secondary fate, and that is the people that we choose to love or be in relationship with. Uh, for most of us, that, that secondary fate uh, is a fate because we're barely conscious of the motives by which uh, we choose the people that we love or relate to. Most of our motivations for choices of relatedness are unconscious. Uh, it's said by most uh, people who study depth psychology that consciousness is uh, but a paltry percentage of the motives that go into one's decision making, that consciousness is but the tip of an iceberg, and most of our motives and drives are unconscious, and we wind up in relationships that we've chosen unconsciously uh, for particular psychological reasons generally of growth, but that doesn't mean uh, that that relationship is particularly easy, pleasant, or romantic. Let's talk about Eros for a while, and then we'll move to Philia, Philia and Agape. Eros, unfortunately, has been taken over uh, by romantic love and the superficiality of the cardboard kind of love that will be celebrated tomorrow. Uh, Eros um, has an ancient and deep uh, history of a part of the hum as a part of the human experience. Hesiod, the Greek philosopher, dates Eros at the beginning of creation, that Eros was there when all things began. A working definition of Eros for me is the non-rational desire to connect, relate, and create. Eros is a a desire, it's unconscious, it comes in our wiring. We are predisposed for erotic uh, relationships and experiences. As I said, unfortunately, when we use the word erotic in our culture, we so associate it with human sexuality that we've lost a bit of the broader or deeper or more cosmic sense of the word eros. It's so uh, been so eroticized, as we would say, and that when we begin to think about Eros, we move quickly to the very uh, narrow part of erotic love, which is human sexual love. 
Eros being a non-rational desire to connect or relate or create was, as Hesiod said at the beginning of creation, and it's that force, as it were, it is that part of the human psyche that is as deep as instinct in the body, and it's what the Jungians would call an archetype. It is a predisposed pattern of human behavior. It's as old as human consciousness itself, and it exists in that part of the unconscious that Jung called the collective unconscious, and the collective unconscious simply means that it's the same for all of us, that the collective, that is all human beings, have this dimension of the unconscious that's called collective that is the same for each of us, not similar but the same. And that each of us have these archetypal urges or longings or or deep predisposed patterns for human behavior that we're driven to experience. Uh, Jung said they're like dry riverbeds in the psyche that are to be filled with uh, the living water of human experience. So Eros is not something that we choose, it's something that has chosen us, as it were, at our birth. That we are part of the cosmic Eros, that whatever we mean by creation, that there was something in the creator of this eros, this non-rational desire to connect, uh, to create, and to relate. Eros then, uh, between and among human beings, creates some significant problems and some significant ecstatic and transcendent and sublime experiences, as well as destructive and disintegrative uh, experiences. Eros, in one sense, is the desire of a subject for an object. We do not limit Eros to understanding of the love between human beings. If it is that non-rational desire to connect or relate or create, we must realize that erotic love is the love of a subject for something outside itself that is an object. Eros is the desire of a subject for an object. Now, that object can be as elusive as a, an idea or an ideal, that there is a kind of erotic, shall we say, passion uh, for concepts, for ideas, for faiths, uh, for a certain kinds of uh, philosophical or political ideas, that we can find ourselves having great eros for. This desire to connect with, to relate to, or to create. Eros is a part of the poet and the musician uh, that strive to create, to somehow uh, make uh, something objective that has thus far been subjective. Now, a companion very quickly to Eros is this concept that the Greeks had of Logos. Now, if we have Eros as a non-rational desire, Logos is the psyche's energy toward making that drive or longing known consciously. So, Logos is that force in the human psyche that brings unconscious material into consciousness, orders it in a way that is reasonable, and then seeks to articulate it. So where there is Eros, there is Logos, and Logos is that 
desire to bring unconscious contents or non-rational contents into consciousness or into reason. So a part of the erotic uh, relationship always is a companion of logos, that is the reflection upon the experience, which in an interesting way is part of the goal of eros, is to bring this experience into consciousness, to complete it as it were. And in so doing, it is expanding the human organism or human consciousness, and in so doing, it expands the human community. So Eros has a very important part of the basic stuff of the cosmos whereby we connect and relate and create and then in a companion opposite logo seeks to bring that experience into consciousness through reflection, uh, ordering it in some reason and seeking to articulate it. So Eros without logos is complete, incomplete. Um, one of the things that we experience uh, in studying human behavior, particularly human behavior that is seeking wellness and completion, that it is important that there is a reflection upon experience, that is, wording things or bringing things into consciousness, making them reasonable and expressing them or articulating them seems to be a necessary part of the completion of the act. And that that completion of the act is expansive for the human consciousness so that Without eros, there is really no growth, consciously or in terms of our organism. So eros is not some flight of fancy, it's not some option that we have, it's archetypal, it's a drive, and it has true function within the human psyche, and that is expansion or wholeness or growth or evolution, any way you want to talk about it, that some of the basic stuff that's began at creation is in the human organism, has its place, and has great function. It is not autoerotic. That is to say, it's not just something to bring us pleasure. That it really does have function and purpose and ought to be honored as such. It is a profound, deep, a substantial, and complex part of the human being. So Eros, as we begin to think about it, unfortunately has a very paltry, limited, and superficial understanding for most of us uh, pedestrians when we talk about Eros. We think of it almost as a synonym for excitement, when in fact it is a very substantial concept, and one of the words that we use for it is love. Now, the desire of a subject for an object is very important unless the object happens to be a subject. And then we've got problems. I can have eros for all kinds of objective things. That's this non-rational desire to connect or relate. I can have eros for an automobile or an oriental rug or a residence. Who among us is not? Have that non-rational desire uh, to connect or relate uh, or create. And um, the dark side of Eros is the desire to possess or consume. So that if the subject has the desire for an object, once one obtains the object, 
the desire to possess it no longer exists. For instance, if I desire an oriental rug, it's non-rational generally, it may be even when it's activated that eros is a strong force within the human psyche. I suspect my desire for the oriental rug has more to, more to it than simply social status or investment, probably has something to do with aesthetics or creativity in the same way that we desire to connect and relate to art. And so I have this great desire for this oriental rug, maybe because it's a mandala, that is, it is a constellation of wholeness. An oriental rug is an ancient and archetypal image of wholeness or selfhood. So we surround ourselves with these kinds of images. So maybe what's going on is a psychological need to have constellated in my living room something of wholeness because of the chaos I experience in my family and house. <laughs> so maybe when I desire an oriental rug, far more is going on than some need to influence or impress my neighbors with what a valuable rug I have in my house, maybe unconsciously uh, that the weavers sitting at the loom knew that they were creating something that soothes human consciousness because in this chaotic world to consolate something of wholeness as we sit by the fire and read might actually be a real gift to us. Be that as, as it may, this non-rational desire to connect or relate or create or the desire of a subject for an object has a dark side to it, and that is that we tend to want to possess the object of our desire. And once we possess it, the desire for it leaves. Now this is the dark side of Eros. Who among us hasn't had this uh, non-rational desire for something that we got, a piece of art that we hang in our house, or a rug that we put on our floor, or an automobile that we place in our garage, and then once we acquire it, we no longer desire it. Now suppose that that object of our desire happens to be a subject, another human being. Then we have a limitation de facto in Eros. And that is, once I uh, am able to connect or relate to that other human being in this non-rational desire, then I want to possess it, that is, I want to have you as my friend. I want to have you as my relationship. And the dark side of Eros is possessiveness, I want to possess you. And the deep, darker side is to consume you. And this is a primitive conflict in most of us. One of the most primitive conflicts in the infant is that it desires to both suck and consume the breast. Now that's a deep primitive conflict. It comes out in popular culture as you can't have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> so it is with another human being is that there's something in us and the dark side is that we want to have all of them. That we want to possess them and consume them. And the conflict of course is that one cannot have them and consume them too. So when erotic love between human beings is activated, uh, then there is this 
passionate desire to connect and to relate, has lots of energy and has lots of excitement, in fact. It does have its own ecstatic and sublime quality to it. But if it's the only aspect or dimension of the relationship, we can, by experience and through reflection, predict that that erotic relationship will end. Now, a part of what goes on in the complication of Eros is what analytical psychology calls projection. And that is that I have within me a desire for another, a relationship with another, a significant other. And that gets activated in my force field with tens of thousands of people that I meet uh, that occasionally somebody will constellate something that is of great attraction for me. It's non-rational. It is an infatuation. It's this non-rational desire to connect or relate. The reasons for it are manifold, almost exclusively unconscious. In years of premarital counseling, which is a misnomer, I mean, there's no counseling going on. Counseling presumes there's a problem to be solved. Premarital counseling, at least in the Episcopal Church, is a kind of formality that's required by canon law in terms of the bride and her hierarchy of values preceding the wedding. Premarital counseling is listed below the choice of wines and the caterer. <clears throat> it's another thing that has to be done in the list of things before the wedding. And years of premarital counseling, which is really premarital information giving, uh, the bride and groom, uh, if asked, now, what are the motivations in you for che choosing this particular human being to define love for you in the world? Well, it's not a question I ever ask, but <laughs> had I, Um, the response would have been, I don't know, I just love him. I'm just... And, the, and the word used, I think, is an accurate description of infatuation when an erotic desire is constellated on another human being. I'm crazy about him. Uh, this interesting phenomenon or part of erotic love is called projection, and that in the human being, we occasionally will find another human being that constellates something uh, that, that completes our incompleteness. It can either be compatibility or it can be an opposite, that is to say a compensatory. One can constellate something in the outer world that I desire or long for that is something I don't feel as though I have in my own existence, all unconscious, and so it's a compensatory relationship. That is, that I'm introverted and they're extroverted, or, or that they um, have a kind of personality that seems to complete mine in my own experience of incompleteness or inadequacy. But generally, in a huge generalization, first half of life um, marriages are based on a compensatory projection. That is, this person compensates for something in me. Uh, as a great generalization, healthy second half of life marriages tend to be more compensatory, and that is that we're able uh, to be more compatible rather than compensatory, and that is uh, we are 
in, in the world together in a way that seems to be complementary. Be that as it may, that much of what we call erotic love is projection, and it is the projection of some archetype onto another human being, totally non-rational, unable to articulate or explain what the attraction is, but we believe, and, and I'm convinced through analysis, that many times the screen, this other human being, this subject, which is being considered in this case as an object, is simply receiving a lot of unlived life projected onto them, and they carry it. We call that falling in love. Now, it's interesting the words that are used to describe this uh, state of consciousness. Falling is an interesting word to describe it, isn't it? Uh, sometimes we call it having a crush. I think that's an interesting word <laughs> to describe what's going on. Uh, it is an infatuation, and that is a lot of energy is in the ego. It is an, what we call an inflation. So it's a kind of infatuation or an inflation where there's so much energy constellated through the relationship, and the projection is so grand that we betray some of the dark pathological side of Eros when we say, I can't live without her. Now, if anybody ever says to you, I can't live without you, um, I suggest that you turn and walk away as rapidly as possible. <laughs> For you have taken on a parasitic relationship. <clears throat> Parasites are unable to live without their hosts. I suspect in a romantic moment of passion, I can't live without you might make uh, good doggerel, <laughs> which is poor poetry, but it doesn't make very good living. So that infatuation, but it does have an incredible strength to it, falling in love, being infatuated, projecting, being inflated. Uh, it, it does have an incredible amount of energy. So much so that we may overthrow our value structure in order to try to experience uh, that relationship. Uh, we may go against reason. We may go against sound advice from others. That Once that gets constellated, it has a life of its own. Where it is an infatuation, it is an intoxication. And it's like trying to get the car keys away from a drunk. Uh, one of the things that people uh, tend to believe when they're in a state of infatuation or projection or inflation is that they know exactly what they're doing. Uh, when in fact, they have very little idea what it is that's truly motivating them unconsciously. Now, for better or for worse, uh, and richer and poorer, um, a lot of our relationships that we inherit in the second half of life began in the first half of life, in an unconscious, uh, non-rational desire uh, to connect or relate, constellated on another human being, infatuated, inflated, and based on some unconscious incompletion and that we need to possess or consume this other person in order uh, to live. So, uh, some of you have heard me say before that, that being a priest of the church for 30 years and officiating at hundreds of weddings that I've many times felt as though I was an accomplice at a crime. 
particularly in those early first half of life uh, marriages where we do have archetypal um, possession going on, and that you say to a 20 to 25 year old uh, bride, as she's looking at you at the time of the vows, will, will you have this man to be your wedded wife, wedded husband, to live together in this state of holy matrimony, uh, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others so long as you both shall live? Well, now, a 22-year-old little girl really doesn't have... Um, the experience base or the maturity to make that kind of vow. And she looks up with those doe eyes and, and says yes, when in fact she's just committed herself to a relationship for the rest of her life and she really has her life planned through the honeymoon. <laughs> now I'm not, I'm not all cynical about marriage. Uh, <laughs> But, but I do think that we need to be candid and, and, and uh, clear about what ironic love gets us into. Now, of course, we know that much of the programming in the human organism at that stage of development is for procreation. That one thing that we're fairly clear that human beings are supposed to do is procreate. That seems to be clear. Uh, there are industries that are developed all around it. And much of what gets constellated as love is that kind of eros, which is the psychological component to the physiological drive of human sexuality. So that's why eros has been so over, I mean, erotic love or human sexuality has been over-identified with eros is because in popular culture, the kind of love that is um, described in getting married is is this erotic love, and it does become eroticized. And what's going on in terms of our own drive uh, to procreate and take an, a very important vow and commitment that we will stay in this relationship, and that has to do with, with the mental health of the children that are born to this relationship. Uh, the reason the church has been so conservative about divorce and indeed about human sexuality is that I think in the main the church was wise to realize that uh, human development depended on both, both a mother and father being present in the family when the children develop. This is an ancient concept. It didn't get to the reading public until 1949, but it's been a part of our understanding of 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 human development all along. In uh, 1949, Benjamin Spock wrote a book that became popular in which he said, the way you treat your children has something to do with the way they develop, which was, uh, for the reading public, a novel idea. <clears throat> the church had known that all along. Uh, what I'm building a case for here is that ironic love is a very important kind of love. It's, it's not uh, optional. It's involuntary. We all experience it one way or another. We experience it uh, in the objective world with objects, and we experience it in the objective world with subjects. And much of our life, uh, what we've considered to be love is really eros, and that eros has its very important function and process. It's not to be undervalued. 
It's not uh, something that we would look at in a critical way as saying avoid. Uh, what we would say is be very conscious of the nature of erotic love and with its limitation. Most particularly that erotic love has a fairly dark side of possessiveness and consumption and further that that particular aspect of love tends to diminish the longer the relationship uh, goes. That's not to say it can't be rekindled, it's not to say that it doesn't have uh, its moments in a long-term relationship, but if one is depending on eros to be the glue that holds together a long-term relationship, I suspect one will be disappointed. Now, the second kind of love that uh, we would list uh, would be what the Greek call philia, P-H, philia, like Philadelphia. P-H-L-I-A. It's a brotherly love. That's what the city of brotherly love was about, was philia. Now, philia is really not brotherly love. That's sorge. That's the one we listed earlier, the love and family. It is um, the kind of love that we would call friendship. Um, if we would say that eros is the desire of a subject for an object, we would say that philia is the desire of two subjects for the same object. Something in common. Friendship develops around things that we desire or long for that are in common. We like the same things. Friendship, generally speaking, is a relationship of compatibility. Uh, that we both uh, like the same kind of humor, we both enjoy the outdoors, we both enjoy the opera, we enjoy playing tennis, these are the things that we share in common. Uh, friendship is more than just the sharing of time, it's also sharing of values, it's also sharing <coughs> similar meanings in life. Uh, friendship uh, can develop slowly, it can develop rapidly, but friendship is a very important kind of love that I think maybe uh, we need to value as much as eros in this culture. Eros seems to be the predominant uh, love. There seems to be a much more industry around eros than there is around friendship or philia. I suspect that uh, in your life, as I could report in mine, that uh, friends, long-term friends, and the kinds of people who have uh, formed and uh, influenced my life as friends are uh, of ultimate value in my life. I suspect that my friends I value as much as any other dimension of, of uh, my life, uh, far more so than any accomplishment or award or reward or some recognition publicly. Most of my friends predate any awards or rewards or titles or diplomas, and so they're a little impressed with that. What they uh, connect with me about is that they love. Philia is a kind of love, a love between friends. It's got uh, a contrasexual as well as homosexual dimension to it. That is to say that it's the love of a woman for a woman or the love of a man for a man that are friends that are very deeply committed to one another. I think that there is, and I'm not talking about just homosexual love, I'm talking about homoerotic love, or we're talking about philia, and that is where two women truly love each other as friends, or two men truly love each other as friends. 
Unfortunately, in our culture, um, the feminine has been given much more model and therefore permission for philia than the masculine. Now, let me say something fairly candid and maybe a bit startling, but I think it's important, is that women tend to know how to love each other without necessarily having to have sex. It seems that men get that very confused, that we don't know how to love somebody without having sex with them. Now, to our defense and credit, we are on the animal side programmed a bit differently than, than females. Uh, the old saying uh, in uh, anthropology is that on the animal side, that female animals are programmed to attract powerful males, and on the male side in the animal kingdom, that the males are programmed to inseminate as many females as quickly as possible. <laughs> now, we're not animals, but we're not... <laughs> Thank you for the anticipation. <laughs> We're not animals, but there is some argument about how far above or distant <laughs> from, from the kingdom we are. Point being, in your experience and mine, that, that men have not been particularly uh, good at friendship or at love because we're so afraid of, uh, or homophobic as it is, and so to, for a man to love another man and to express that love uh, physically with a hug or a kiss, very dangerous because we are so programmed that where there's love that there's sex. And uh, I think many of us and perhaps in our culture with the change and the advent of feminine that almost like the New Yorker cartoon, we men are now beginning to luxuriate in our feminine side. <laughs> And so we're getting much healthier about being able to have love relationships with other men. But my point being is that friendship is of ultimate value in terms of the human experience. It is the well-known support system. Um, it is the enjoyment of sharing of life. That life evidently is to be shared. That it seems to take on um, a more profound dimension when one's able to share life. Even the most introverted person, uh, when uh, they have an uh, important or meaningful experience, uh, seems to be driven to share it with another human being. It seems to be incomplete until it's shared. And so this is part of the dimension of philia that we uh, so experience and desire. Now, given the scope of our lecture, I don't think that um, I'm doing a superficial introduction of these, but uh, we could spend, once again, a semester dealing with eros or dealing with philia, but under the scope of our time, uh, we need to move to agape. Let me say before we go to agape that, that in terms of eros and philia, that, that, that both of those can be present in a relationship at the same time. That is to say that uh, one can begin a relationship in philia and it can become eroticized or one can begin a relationship erotically and it can move into philia. I suspect uh, particularly in what we would call uh, the institution of marriage or 
the institution of commitment where life partners commit to one another that there needs to be both eros and philia in order for the relationship to prosper. Um, there are a lot of cliches about people who have had a relationship of friendship and then fell in love, that they, they ruined a good friendship by falling in love. But I think that the dimensions of friendship or philia and eros must both be present um, because the, the dark side of philia is that if we have things in common, uh, we may not prosper. If you base a relationship, a long-term commitment on enjoying the outdoors and tennis, what are you going to do in the meantime? <laughs> that there are other dimensions of the psyche that are operative there than just saying what we have in common. Agape. Agape would be, of course, the most substantial love, and when uh, we talk about love and its psychological or theological depth, the word that we would use to describe love would be agape, A-G-A-P-E. Agape is the desire of a subject for a subject. With this addition, that one subject is willing to give itself up for the other. Agape is the word in the New Testament that's used uh, when we're talking about God's love. When we when the scripture says, God so loved the world, the word there is agape. Now, in theological terms, it has generally been thought of as God's love for humankind. It is the well-known unconditional love, or the love without condition. It is the love of a subject for a subject that is of such dimension that one subject is willing to sacrifice itself for the other. It is without condition. No strings attached. Traditionally, we have said theologically that human beings are incapable of agape, though it is something that we long and desire that uh, because of our human limitation, we are incapable of agape, that only God loves without condition. Once again, that we might say hyperbolically that I love you without condition, but it is a desire, it is not a fact. That human beings have conditions on all of their kinds of love. That only God is capable of loving without condition. Now, when we think about agape, uh, the kind of love that generally is the analogy is the love of a parent for a child. I talked about that in the early part of the lecture, that the kind of love that a parent has for a child is probably as close as we get in the human experience to the concept of agape. But human beings are not gods, and our human condition continually affects uh, our love relationships. And even in that kind of love that a parent has for a child that approaches unconditional love, there are still conditions on it. That is, much as we would want to say to our children that we love them without condition, it's not accurate. We have conditions all over our love for our children. 
I who probably no man has ever loved his children more than I. Uh, nobody delights in the human experience of being a parent any greater than I, but unconsciously my fingerprints are all over their development. <laughs> and they uh, developed very much around a lot of the conditions that were placed on my love for them. Uh, the famous or infamous story in our family is when my son Pittman, now 29, married, um, has his own vocation in life. Before he went to college, we had what my boys refer to as a dad and lad talk. So I took him to lunch and talked to him about safe sex and drinking and checkbook and the conditions on uh, what I thought were important for a college education. Uh, number one, go to class, and number two, don't wreck your car. <laughs> anyway, he was talking about the anxiety that he was experiencing in anticipation of going to college. And I said, what about? And he said, well, you know, it's just the time when you are off on your own, and you begin your own sense of accomplishment. And I'm just anxious about whether I'm going to be able to uh, make it in college. And so I went to a defensive posture saying, why, son, your mother and I have never put any pressure on you to succeed or accomplish. <laughs> I've always only wanted you to do what you were capable of doing and just being the best possible human being you could. Why, you've never experienced any pressure from me, have you? <laughs> to which he responded, Dad, you are pressure. <laughs> Of course, what he meant was that the way I've lived my life, what I've modeled, the messages that I have given to him, that those were all conditions. In a way, we could make a case that let's be honest about having conditional love for our children, that we need to set boundaries, we need to set expectations, we need to set limits. Now, we'd like to say there's no limit on my love, but we also know that sometimes uh, that that our children do disappoint us and our children do choose different values and our children do uh, act out and behave in ways that, that uh, are unlovable. Um, so I suspect that agape is really not the love of a parent for a child. Now theologically, and I keep saying that because I'm going to move to a psychological concept in just a moment, Theologically, what we have taught is that I cannot love you without condition, that only God can do that. But in Christian tradition, we were taught that we can participate in that love. Uh, Jesus said to the disciples, you must love one another. And they said, well, how do we do that? And he said, as I have first loved you. That it is possible uh, to come to a kind of consciousness with another human being that we love and say, at this moment, my human frailty and my paltry ability to love uh, is at its limit. And I can't love you now as I love you. I must love you as God loves you. Now, it would be possible then, on occasion, 
and I must say for a temporary basis, to love another human being without conditions and to really see them as God must see them. That we can love another as God loves them. Now let's move to psychology for a moment and then we'll have time for some questions and answers. Psychologically, there we get a lot of help in understanding love because we understand that there's not just one uh, center to the human being. That we have at least two centers, one conscious and one unconscious. That the center of consciousness is ego. And this is where we have so much trouble with love. Uh, because the ego is a kind of self-perpetuating organism in consciousness that has grown through stimulation and gratification and approval. So, so much of what we call love is egocentric. That is, that we are trying to satiate or soothe or compensate for something in our ego structure that is missing. And so much of what we call love is really the ego's attempt at soothing or, or correcting or uh, compensating for something that's missing in the ego structure. That's why, unconsciously, a man might choose a woman who really constellate much more of what he didn't get in his mothering than what we would understand as a lifelong partner. Uh, Sigmund Freud had a lot to say and write about this unconscious desire for mother, so much so that we reenact it many times in who we choose for our mates. There's even a popular song when I was growing up, I want a gal just like the gal that married dear old dad. So that one center of our love for another is ego, and that's where we get in so much trouble. Both in eros, eros, philia, and what we would attempt at agape is that there's a limitation in egocentric love. <coughs> that the ego is able to love without condition save one, and that is the ego must have love in return. I am able to love you without condition, but the only condition is that you have to love me back. I cannot love you if you do not love me. That in this sense, the opposite of love is apathy. In Eros, the opposite of love is power. That is, that I want to control you, I want to possess you, I want to consume you. In this understanding of love of agape, the opposite of agape would be apathy. That is, no love at all, nothing. And the ego is incapable of connecting or relating to a love that doesn't have any reciprocity to it. Now, we even have trouble not only loving somebody that doesn't love us, we have trouble letting somebody love us that we don't love. It's very difficult for us. Uh, what do you do at Christmas when you get a card that you didn't send one to? Why can't you just let them love you? We always have the sense that we have to somehow reciprocate. And for good reason, because that's the way the ego works. Psychologically, there is a dimension to the psyche that um, is called the self, capital S, the center, 
it's a kind of paradoxical center and circumference of the psyche. It's the essence and totality. But there is, I think, in the center of every human being, this self that is capable of agape. Because it is the image of God in each of us. That if we take the very simple idea that the Creator, and we find it in the Hebrew creation story, and we find it uh, in all religious traditions, uh, that the Creator put some spark of the Creator in every creature. So that each of us has this imago dei, or this image of God in each of us. The imago dei is the image of God, and the image of God is in each of us, and that if we can have that kind of consciousness of selfhood, that I believe it is possible for a human being to love another without condition. That is the love of a self for a self, not the love of an ego for an ego. That's a difficult, interesting uh, relationship always. The things, about, uh, the things about which novels are written but the kind of love that I think we want to celebrate tomorrow is not eros. It's fairly superficial. Not of such substance as to sustain a relationship for life. Nor is philia, but both of which are very important. But it seems to me what we're talking about when we talk about love when we say God is love, is the love of a self for another self, the love of the essence of myself for the essence of you. And that might, on occasion, perhaps, be a love without condition. So in summary, it seems to me that much of what we talk about when we talk about love is erosophilia, a very important part of the human experience. We will have lovers and friends. But the kind of meaningful love, the one that we find in religious literature, is what psychology would call the love of a self for a self without uh, ego, an egoless love, a love that expects nothing in return, a love that will be there without condition. Now, the reason this conversation is important is not that we can have the ability to differentiate among these loves, though so that in itself has some importance. The reason this conversation is important is because agape is where I think life's ultimate meaning lies, and that it is what is the most important ingredient in health, healing, and wholeness. That if we are to seek wellness, then we must have some experience of agape in our life. Some experience of that love without desire. The love that transcends and the love that transforms and that's why that I think that religion is in being, not to give us codes for behavior necessarily, 
for sure not to shame us into normative behavior patterns, but that religion is there because it puts together those things that have been separate. Teilhard de Chardin says that the love is made, that the world is made up of fragments seeking out one another in order to make a whole. So it is within us. So it is between us. So it is among us that we're seeking to make whole that which is separate, that which is diverse, that which is fragmented, and that which completes or that which makes whole is love. But the kind of love we describe as agape. That's why among all biblical literature the one line that has informed my own theology and my own sense of meaning in the world is the one from John's first letter where he says, God is love and those who dwell in love dwell in God and God in them. Amen. Now surely uh, this meditation or reflection has stirred in you wonderings or curiosities or contradictions or exceptions or disagreements. Uh, who among you would like to respond? Yes, please. Forty. Okay. You want to start with forty or thirty-one, or start with number one. Do you think that we, as a culture, are slightly distracted today because of the pop psychology that says you cannot love another before you love yourself? That kind of confusion. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, I think so, because pop psychology would, that would be, that, that loving yourself that we find in the kind of the popular culture is really autoeroticism. And we're not really talking about the depth of love that, uh, that, that agape would presume. So yes, I would agree that the popular understanding of loving yourself is a kind of autoeroticism. It's a narcissism. It's Frank Sinatra saying, I did it my way when his way was to leave dead bodies the whole way. Um, so I, yes, I would say that loving yourself in the popular culture is an autoeroticism. But I would say that self-love does have a place, and that is the love of oneself, capital S rather than small s, I think is very important. Uh, the idea that, uh, for instance, uh, the rabbi Jesus uh, said that um, when he was working with his vocation, said that um, there were only two commandments, to love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now the word there is agape, and it's of substance. But uh, there are those of us who believe that it could be possibly translated that rather than saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself. They can be translated, you will love your neighbor. So that if we talk about love of self, where there's that deep acceptance of my inadequacy and my incompleteness, 
that if I take that attitude toward myself, it tends to be the one I take toward others. So that I think we could make a case that self-love is of ultimate value and importance, but it's a depth uh, kind of love that's not not summarized in if it feels good, do it. Somebody, uh, we'll get to your other 39 in just a minute. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, I mean, I yeah. I agree. <laughs> well, <clears throat> the, um, the, there's so many things that compete for it within our own psychological system, and it gets more complicated when you introduce another human being, and then, you know, if we get to the whole, we got a big complication. But um, the reason it's so difficult to sustain is because it requires a great deal of consciousness. We have to be conscious of it, and there's so much competition for consciousness. There's so many other things that go on in our psyches other than just this desire for love, and, and, and um, the primary one being that there is so much incompleteness and fragmentation in our own psyche that we're always looking for that that will not put us back together again or make us whole. We're looking for that that will soothe our pain. And so, so much of what we spend much of our life doing is soothing pain rather than seeking wholeness. We want symptom relief, and so we will take whatever feels good at that moment to relieve the symptom of pain rather than committing to uh, a higher or greater sense of consciousness, which means that maybe the suffering, the pain, will lead me to, you know, a greater depth of my own being. Uh, the old joke in analytical psychology is the little boy went to the man on the street in New York and said, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And he said, practice, practice, practice. So it, how, how do you get to this? It's consciousness, consciousness, consciousness. And there's so much competition for our consciousness that it's hard for us to sustain this kind of conscious commitment because we have so many other things going on in our humanity. But I think if we don't get conscious of this, then we cannot accomplish it. And I think it begins with a conscious commitment to it. Yes? I feel that there is a physiological yeah, yeah, yeah. problem that goes on in one's life that uh, we aren't mentioning at all. Uh, when you live to be an old lady uh -huh. or an old man, uh -huh. uh, you can embrace a guy. Mm -hmm. You don't need the eroticism or anything like that and um, you don't miss it that uh, then it's very easy to uh, just fill your life with the joys of the gospel mm -hmm. and really love somebody and people mm -hmm. unconditionally mm -hmm. because you're not battling all the physiological yep. stuff that's going on yep. and you can't just erase that that is such an yep. integral part of life you have to embrace it and do something. You go to a nunnery. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I agree with part of that. I, uh, I agree with the lowering of estrogen testosterone that we take on a different attitude toward other human beings. I agree. Uh, as a 56-year-old man who as it w was at one time an 18-year-old boy, things change. <laughs> 
But I wouldn't agree that that physical love is not still important. Um, that I think that there there is a kind of uh, inseparable relationship between psyche and soma, that we get to some of our psychological needs through the body. That that um, I wouldn't postulate that physical love making is a requirement, but it may, may be another vehicle for experiencing this kind of love. In other words, uh, I think it's the attitude about human sexuality rather than human sexuality that's the problem. Um, that I wouldn't want to go on record as saying that physical love is, is not important in terms of agape, that I think many times agape can be uh, an, an expression of uh, that physical love can allow us to experience agape also. Well, I would say yeah. agape is a wonderful uh, substitute yeah. if you're a widow yes. or a widow. Yes. So you can you can uh, um, fulfill an otherwise maybe arid life with that, and I, for which people should be very grateful. I agree. As a matter of fact, there's a whole religious tradition saying that celibacy may help us uh, achieve a higher form of, of love. Um, and that is that we begin to realize that, there is, that the dimension that we're seeking is not just physical, but what we're seeking to experience may come to us through the physical. But many times the physical becomes so predominant that unless we choose um, to remove ourselves from the physical aspect of lovemaking that we can't get to the deeper value. So I think celibacy has always been an important religious uh, uh, option of choice. I don't think we can legalize it. And I, and I, I think, no, well, there, there's a, you may know this, but I, I remind you there's a, a large community of uh, Christians who uh, think celibacy is legal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somebody else. Yes. Well, if um, the, the problem with philia is that we cannot isolate it as one form of love in a relationship. In other words, um, that other dimensions of both eros and agape are always present in a human relationship. So if we say we're just friends, I, I don't know that that really is possible because we will be put to the test of uh, how is this relationship going to be sustained through the difficult or the, the uh, disappointing uh, or hurtful times if there isn't either eros agape. And I don't think we can finally say that philia would ever be the only dimension of a relationship. If it is, the darkness of it is, that usually those things that we have in common won't sustain the relationship. That the things we have in un that are uncommon to us will disintegrate the relationship. I think in a way to say we're just friends w would be a, a way to seek to define a relationship, but in fact I don't think friendships um, prosper or become long-term unless there's some dimension of agape and eros there. So I don't think you can li isolate friendship. And that's why those are confusing relationships because they 
they have their limitations. Uh, and, and we don't, the thing that's difficult for us is that we don't make any kind of ritualistic commitment to lifelong friendship in the way we do with significant others. Uh, well, I think maybe we should or maybe we could, uh, but, but we tend not to. Because what happens in a friendship is that time and circumstance and geography really erodes relationships of friendship. We move away. You know, we, uh, we don't get to spend time together because of other commitments like children and spouses or significant others. So the friendship, I think, is ultimately of ultimate value, but it's a very difficult um, aspect of love. Yeah. Okay. The question was... <laughs> And the tapes, the, we do a tapes of these and the people are driving in their car to Austin and wonder, wonder what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> I think they do that anyway. But, um, but they really do it when they don't understand what the question was. And the question was about the dark side of friendship. So, somebody else. Yes, please. Well, yeah, I think uh, my colleague who was Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London had a lot to say about that, that no one, no man is an island. That there is a kind of collective connectedness here, we call it in church communion of saints, that there is this, this idea, Jung talked about th that, that in nature there is a ry rhizome where, this, where all of the root systems and things are connected in nature, that there really is a connectedness between and among people, that when we feel that or are aware of or make manifest that connectedness, when that loss goes, it feels as though it's a, it's a loss of something of mine or of me, that uh, none of us is an island, so that when there's that loss, there is a, a grief, that I, it's as though I've lost a dimension of myself. And any of us who've had significant relationships, who've lost that relationship, it is a sense of I've lost something of myself. So that none of us really is in isolation. We are all connected in intricate relationships. And when one of those ends or, or leaves, we're grieving as though we have lost a part of our body. We, we, we are no, not as complete as we were previous to that. And there is something in the psyche, and it's probably in our brains, I think it is in our chemical system. Let me move to another dimension very quickly. What we discover in what's known as post-traumatic stress disorder is that there are some symptoms in a post-traumatic stress disorder. When one's traumatized, an accident, surgery, um, uh, being held up at gunpoint, being raped, whatever the trauma is that there is a set of sort of uh, symptoms that develop around it. One of which is a profound sense of loss, almost no matter what the trauma is, and that that 
that what the brain then does is begin a kind of obsessionality around the loss, which is the brain's attempt at healing. That, that the brain makes or forces us to deal with it. That's why we take sedatives and drink and everything else when we're in a sense of loss. It's because we can't stop thinking about this person. We are obsessed by it. It literally is an obsessional perseveration, as we talk about, in the brain. And it's the brain's attempt to heal it. So that um, anybody who's been in trauma will find that one, one symptom in the post-trauma is this obsessionality about it and, and a kind of sense of, of grief or loss over it. And I think it's, it's both the experience of profound loss of something of myself and nature's attempt to heal. That's what grief is. That's what pining is. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else? Oh, is that why? <laughs> yeah. The, the, the statement was that she wishes she had brought her husband. I wonder what his wishes are. <laughs> yes, please. Going along with that point, uh-huh. uh, is there anything to say about the fact that it is hard to bring, or why are males not as interested in this type of topic? Yeah. The question is, why are males not as interested in this concept, or you know, why why would we find that uh, a, a lecture such as this would attract more women, or why have women been predominantly more interested in love? Any movie that uh, that's romantic is referred to as a chick flick kind of thing. Well, I think it's very very deep, and 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 very mysterious, but one of the things that that is so much a part of us today is this, you know, hunter-gatherer idea. And that the hunters, by the nature of their vocation, relationships were liabilities. That um, in order to be able to be outer-directed and focused on hunting, that you had to be very protective of your vulnerability. Now, vulnerable means open to being hurt. And so, you, vulnerability, the, the psyche and the soma are so much one that many times uh, the, the brain doesn't know the difference between, let's say, um, um, a, 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 an enemy warrior or a bear in the path or being in love. That, they're, that both, all three, are opening you up to... So at a deep, deep sort of programming level, a part of what we get modeled in, in the men and in our culture is this idea of not being vulnerable to being hurt. Now, if you take, a, a, say, some mythological... Um, formula, something like the Eros and Psyche myth, one of the things that Eros, who was an, an, a, a, a god, not a goddess, and we've always sort of liked this, that this is where we went wrong, we didn't realize that Eros is really masculine. But um, one of the things Eros said to Psyche was that I can come and I can be your lover, but you can never see my face. And so 
being the curious woman she was, she brought the lamp in while he was asleep. The oil from the lamp fell down, burned his shoulder, and he fled. Now that myth gives us something about the wisdom of the masculine, uh, or the, the, some wisdom about the masculine, and that is that, that men are afraid of being known. Because where, where you're known, you're vulnerable to being hurt, and so not being known would be a kind of a natural protection. Interestingly enough, the word in Hebrew for lovemaking is yada, which means to be known. So men are basically afraid of being known and, and being vulnerable because their programming is all towards surviving on the hunt. That would be a, a sort of a, a deeper reason for that. But primarily, we, we've, um, that, if that's a predisposition, it's sure been laminated by culture. I mean, the culture really um, sort of emphasizes that. Somebody else? Yes, you have. Uh, you have thirty-nine left. If the young people today are being are going into marriage uh, on the basis of eros, yes, and we are dealing with a very fifty percent. I'm now told it's 58 percent. Is there any hope and what kind of direction? I mean, is there, is there anything that can be done about this very, very difficult to raise yourself? The question is that um, the, the idea of, that over 50 percent of first marriages will end. Uh, the percentage is not that much greater on second marriages, but, uh, and the reason is because people tend to repeat patterns of behavior. They're deep patterns of behavior, and we simply repeat them rather than learn from them. So what, what do we do with this uh, idea that uh, uh, young people are motivated primarily by eros? And it is a procreation uh, instinctual need also. Um, I, I don't have an answer to that except to say that we need to be um, very conscious of how evolution and, and mores change and that um, longevity has really put us in a kind of chaos about the idea of holy matrimony anyway. And we've got a lot of problems today with the institution of marriage uh, because we, we, in the collective, still have a, a kind of uh, mindset about what, holy, what, what the institution of marriage is to look like, which may be anachronistic. Uh, for instance, uh, the average life expectancy in this country in 1900 was 49 years of age. Now, um, I, I don't know what the statistics were, uh, you know, say, in the Middle Ages when we got the predominant mores about marriage, um, but we do know with, with women dying in childbirth that it was, was expected that marriages wouldn't last very long. 
As a matter of fact, when Cramner in the in the English prayer book, which has become sort of the standard template of vows for holy matrimony, when he wrote those in 1549, the question was not, I mean, the, uh, the emphasis was not so much on you had to stay married the rest of your life. That's what, so long as you both shall live. What it meant was this vow, vow is only intact so long as you both shall live. Because the problem then was that, that they even asked Jesus, you know, if a man is married to a woman and then she dies and he marries another woman, to whom is he married in heaven? Remember that was a question Jesus asked. And Jesus responded, this is a paraphrase, I've got good news. Uh, we won't be married in heaven. Um, the, when Cramner said, so long as you both shall live, what the question was, well, one of us will predecease the other. Does that mean the vow has to go on or can we be released from the vow? So really what the vow was, that this vow is in fact as long as you both shall live and then you may marry again if somebody predeceases. That's what the vow was about. It had a whole different emphasis. Now it's like a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you both... And the reason that's relevant, you see, is because, you know, the institution of marriage, I mean, the idea is that little girls would go into monarchy or get their first menstrual period when they were 14 or 15 and then marry immediately. And then, uh, so the mores of marriage are, are very different now. If a little girl goes into monarchy now at 12 or 13, but the mores have changed to where they're not getting married to 28, let's say, we've got a whole different problem here. And the other thing is that if you committed to stay married to somebody for the rest of your life in 1549, that was not a great commitment. Uh, but if you do that at 22 today and we expect to live to be 75 or 80, and I'm also, I pick up these statistics, I don't know whether they're true, I read the paper like everybody else, uh, that one in three females born today will live to be 100. So I don't know what the institution of marriage is going to look like in the future, but I think probably our view of holy matrimony is a little bit anachronistic in terms of what the times are dictating the mores. We find that on human sexuality just as a fact. I mean, we'd like to deny it or act like it isn't true or shout loud or don't do that, but the facts are premarital sex is normative, not exceptional. I suspect it maybe always has been. They're just a little more honest about it, but nonetheless, uh, you know, we've got the, the whole idea of human sexuality and holy matrimony is sort of in a cock's hat right now. And the church is just going nuts over it, by the way. I mean, it doesn't know, you know, it wants to go back to the old ways. And we always do. We all, you know, let's get back to the good old days. You know why the good old days are good? We're not in them. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't have any wisdom about it. I, I once again would say that, that, um, if we could ever, as a collective, move from our understanding of love from eros to agape, we would be a long way toward having healthy relationships. I think that I could say. Um, whether that's going to happen or not, I, I don't know. But I do think that um, the whole idea of longevity has really changed a lot about what we understand commitment and marriage and, and uh, love to be. And I suspect a more sophisticated understanding of love is what we need than, than the paltry one we have that says, you know, I fall in love and get married. Well, by the clock on the wall, I can see our time's up. It's been a great afternoon. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.